Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Love Fruit podcast. And I can't quite believe that we've made it through so many episodes so far without interviewing Don Bennett, who's joining me today. And Don is, uh, there's very few people with more uh, experience and knowledge about the raw vegan, raw foods, fruit based lifestyle, healthy vegan lifestyle, um, natural hygiene lifestyle. Very few people with uh, more experience with that than Don. So yeah, really good to have you on. He's one of the main speakers at the Woodstock Fruit Festival. Uh, if you're going to go there, you'll get a chance to spend a lot of time at Don's lectures and other classes. So, And you can find him at health101.org as well. Um, I know that Don was not always uh, a, a vegan, not always a health researcher, not always a teacher. He did have a, another life. Uh, before that, which is very interesting as well, and we might talk a bit about that. Um, but yeah, that's that's what I'm going to say. Don, is there anything you would like to say to the audience in introduction to yourself before we get going? Uh, yeah, just a, about a little bit of, of my bio. I've been researching health issues for about 48 years. I've been vegan for 47 years. I've been teaching for about uh, 26 years. I've been raw vegan for 21 years and counseling in private practice for 19 years. And uh, can't wait, two more years, I'll be able to say I've been researching for half a century. Wow, wow. Well, let's, I guess let's go right back, if you're okay with that. Were you brought up as a vegan, vegetarian, anything alternative like that? Oh, no, no. I had a, a very typical Western upbringing. Um, in the in this, the 60s were you know better living through chemistry right so that's when bha and ba uh, the, the various preservatives came in so then you started having a lot of uh, junk food appear and so i was basically raised on junk food as a kid um what were some of the names yodels ring dings ding dongs ho hos hawaiian <laughs> punch i mean just the the immense amount of garbage that was in our house um, as opposed to the way my parents were raised or my grandparents grew up. Uh, so I grew up with all that garbage. I remember just, it's a horrible thought, but just getting breakfast cereal and just taking the spoons full of sugar from the sugar bowl <laughs> and just sprinkling it all over the, the yeah. cereal and eating. And it was frosted flakes. I mean, it was flakes already frosted with sugar and I'm adding more sugar onto it. I don't know how I survived those uh, initial years. And we ate a lot of frozen food. Um, there were no microwaves yet, so frozen foods were were made in you know in the oven. But my mom wasn't in the greatest of health, so she never made you know she never cooked a, an actual meal. So it was just frozen foods thrown in the oven. So we ate a lot of those uh, TV dinners, Swanson's, Stouffer's. So it was a really horrible. <laughs> it was a horrible diet. Now I will say there was fresh fruit in the house. My mom always did buy some fresh fruit. Uh, which I discovered that I liked much better than anything else that was in the house. <laughs> but, <laughs> but these were snacks. Uh, she didn't buy enough to make meals out of them. And there were times when I went to go grab an apple and she would say, no, don't eat that. You're going you're gonna to spoil your appetite for dinner. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, couldn't eat the apple. I thought the idea of eating an apple was to spoil your appetite. Um, but anyway... Uh, so I didn't get to eat the apple and had a 
eat dinner, which was, you know, cooked food. It was not vegan at all. So that's how I was raised. It's so funny in a way, because I can't imagine that even a generation or two before that, people must have been more commonly eating fruit and growing fruit. And it's just, it's funny how things change so quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, um, so did you suffer any health issues as a, as a child as a result of this kind of lifestyle? Well, I had health issues, but not because of the diet that I was raised on. When my mom was pregnant with me, she was taking a pharmaceutical drug called phenobarbital. And that's an anti-seizure drug because she had epilepsy. Um, now, they didn't know back in the mid-50s that drugs like phenobarbital would deplete the body of folate. So she had a folate deficiency. And as some people know, when a mom who's going to have a baby has a folate deficiency, that baby will be born with some kind of birth defects um, because of that folate deficiency. Some babies born don't last more than a week or two and they die. And I wasn't one of those, fortunately, um, because my mom did eat some fruit. Uh, she ate some of the fruit that she did buy, but the phenobarbital just depleted her body of a lot of the folate. So the challenges I had growing up were just because of birth defects that I was born with. Um, but I will say that even if, no matter what, I mean, we're all born with some kind of genetic weaknesses for one sure. reason or another, where, where whether your mom is taking drugs or not. Uh, hopefully she, she doesn't. And, and by the way, just as an aside, today, Medical doctors know that phenobarbital depletes the body of folate, yet there are some medical doctors who prescribe it for young women who've just been found to have epilepsy, and they don't mention anything at all about taking a, a, a folic acid supplement. It just boggles the mind how, you know, how little we know today. I mean, how much we know, but aren't put, isn't put into practice in the medical industry. But that's just a, a soapbox of mine. Um, so we're all born with some individual weaknesses. And my point is, if you're raised healthy, it almost doesn't matter what those genetic weaknesses are that you're born with. Because if you're, if you're raised healthfully and you live a healthful lifestyle, paying attention to you know, all the basics of health, you're very likely to get you know, from birth to death without ever knowing you had any of these weaknesses. Sure, sure. And... Um... I think I, I, I always like talking to you about your um, your sort of profession when you were younger, which I always find so interesting. Uh, you were you, you, you going to perform in it quite a young age. Well, when I was a little kid, uh, we had a, a friend of my father's. We called him uh, Uncle John. And I don't think he was related to us. In fact, I'm now sure he wasn't. But we called him Uncle John, friend of my father's. And he just loved he just made people laugh. He was so freaking funny. And so he would make me laugh. And I, I realized I, I, I'm, I'm the kind of a person who puts things together. I'm very observant. So even as a child, I was very observant. So I observed or, or realized that I felt so good when I was laughing. If I can make others laugh, they'd be feeling the same way that I'm feeling when I laugh. And that's such a great feeling. So I got into making people laugh for that reason because it would make them feel the way I felt when I laughed, which was a great feeling, as we all know. So I started goofing around as a kid, just performing and doing things, anything I could do to make people laugh. And then I met somebody in, um, in high school who had a love for classic comedy characters, as I did, 
um, Abbott and Costello, Laurel and Hardy, the Marx Brothers. So we became good friends and we decided to start performing together um, professionally. And, and because I was tall, I was kind of tallish and thin and he was uh, very overweight, unfortunately, but he was very overweight. So there was a lot of uh, comedy characters like that, where one is tall and thin and one is short and, and, and overweight. Um, so we started performing and just for free, just to do it again, because we enjoyed it and we enjoyed making other people laugh. And then someone, one day someone offered to pay us. And it was like, oh, we can get paid doing this? Well, that's great. How much do we charge? $1,000. No, that's too much. $10. No, that's too little. <laughs> we were trying to figure out what to charge to do these performances that we had honed uh, and, and put together. And then we just started doing it professionally. And someone, we went to a Woody Allen movie inter, um, audition, rather. Uh, and we got to meet Woody Allen, which is nice. And we were going to be in the movie Zelig, but then that scene was cut out. But anyway, we stayed in costume and in character and in Manhattan. So we were discovered by somebody else, a producer. And so we started doing trade shows and sales meetings. So we had about a 25 year career doing that, just making people laugh. It was like the most fun part of my life. It was, it was really great. Now, this part of my life, I'm not really making people laugh, but I am helping people <laughs> get healthier, which is kind of in the same vein. But you obviously take a lot of that experience into the presentations that you give nowadays. And you, you, are, you, you do have your moments where you're quite funny. I know that's not your focus in the, in the presentations you give, but you certainly have. Uh, I remember you had some, I can't even remember what the joke was, but you, you even made the kind of visual joke using your um, slideshow. I just remember laughing my head off at that, but um, you're a very meticulous, organized present. Like I always notice that you like to make sure everything's sort of planned, rehearsed, and uh, I guess that's, that's the experience that you have. Oh, yeah. No. Well, obviously, it's a huge responsibility to teach people something about health. So I want to be very organized. I want to have um, all my I's dotted and, and T's crossed. Um, so I, I put a lot into the presentations to make sure they'll be good. And, and it's always a PowerPoint presentation so people can see something visual. And, you know, a lot of times I'm talking about something pretty serious. So I like to interject some kind of um, comedy into it if I can, you know, just to just to keep it lighthearted. Um, so yeah, I mean, and so that's what I try and do is just be funny when it's appropriate. Some things are not funny. I mean, last two years, um, <laughs> not been very funny at all. Uh, just things that I knew 20 years ago were going to happen are happening now. I was hoping it wouldn't happen during my lifetime. So I wouldn't have to witness it. But here it is. Again, this was predicted by people who understood the issue that's going on right now, because I've been studying that issue for 35 years. Um, so, but still try and be as lighthearted as I can. Do you want to talk a little bit about your, your uh, opinion on the global pandemic situation? I guess that's what you're talking about. Yeah, I don't, I don't talk in terms of opinions. Uh, no one should be interested in my opinion, and I'm really not interested in anyone else's. I'm interested in facts, and that's what everybody should be interested in, is facts, because opinions can be wrong. Now, now facts can be false facts, false information, um, but if you find the real facts about something, 
that's that's always been the best thing. And I realized that, by the way, I realized that at a very young age. I mean, I, I think I just became a teenager. I had a question, and I asked an adult the question. I don't even remember what the question was, but the adult said a very emphatic no. That what I thought was correct was not correct. And he didn't explain why. He just said, no, that's not right, blah, blah, blah. But he seemed very sure of himself. So I just adopted that and said, okay, I stand corrected. And then I happened to mention it to some other adult. And the other adult said, well, what do you mean? No, no, the answer is yes. And I'm like, what? <laughs> the answer is yes. But he went and was able to explain in great detail why the answer was yes. And then he said, well how, well, how did you come to that conclusion? I said, well, such and such said the answer was no. Said, well, did he explain why? Well, no, he didn't. Well, that's what you've got to do. You just don't accept what somebody says. Take it as the gospel truth. You've got to just, you know, assume, understand that people can be wrong about things. And, 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 and some people can be corrected when they're wrong and some people can't be. So you really got to be careful. You got to vet all information coming in. Don't assume anything you know, that people say. So that's when I learned that, okay, adults don't really know what they're talking about, or some of them don't. <laughs> some of them do, some of them do, and some of them don't. But it's not quite obvious when you, when you, when you speak with them. You just got to take their answers and then do the research yourself. So I became a researcher, uh, you know, as a teenager, just not officially, but just learning the importance of researching everything, vetting the information. And then I've learned in subsequent decades later to also vet the person giving you the information, learn about the person themselves, because that can help uh, tell you a lot about the, the, the accuracy of the information that they're giving out. You know, are they, a person, are they a person who can admit when they're wrong? Well, if they are, then it's a good chance that the information they have is, is accurate. If, if, if they're a person like, you know, from Happy Days, that, that TV show, The Fonz, he could never say the word wrong, he could never admit when he was wrong, um, couldn't even say the word. A person like that, it, there's a better chance that the information they have could be incorrect because they, they can't self-correct. So I learned all this at a very early age, and I just found human nature to be fascinating. So it fascinated me. So um, over the years, that's what I've done. I've just you know learned about human nature. And um, so what, what was the question? What, what are the facts then? And you're uh, oh, right, right, right. Actually, around. Um, Yes, the what's fact been happening and what led up to that. I think you were implying that there's been something that's led up to this happening. Well, yeah, you just have to. Now, when I have this conversation with people, it, it, there can be a lot of triggering going on because people, you know, they don't want to believe certain things are going on or they don't want to believe certain things that I say are true. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not true. It just means they, they just don't want to believe that. It's like diet, right, Ronnie? When we talk to people about diet, and they hear what we talk about diet and and they they juxtapose that with what mainstream health professionals say about diet about how we need to eat a balanced diet which includes meat and dairy and grains it's totally different from what we talk about they don't want to believe that we're correct because what does that mean that means they can't trust the mainstream dietitians and nutritionists and, and doctors and people who talk about uh you know diet or, yeah. or, or health in general and, and now they have to start researching things on their own and they have to be responsible. They, they just can't trust people. Well, that, that's, you know, people don't like to feel that. So it's important that people understand that if you own a shoe company, I mean, you're the owner of a big shoe company 
what's your goal? Your goal is to maximize profit. Anybody who owns a company, the goal is to maximize profit. In fact, if it's a corporation, you have a fiduciary responsibility to maximize profit to all your shareholders. So goal number one and goal number two and goal number three, maximize profit, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you, if you make shoes, you want to sell as many shoes as possible. You, you don't want someone just buying only what they need. Oh. <laughs> you want them buying more than what they need. Right, because that gets you to as many shoes as possible globally. So, and, and do you care if somebody can't pay their rent that month? No, as long as they're buying as many shoes as they possibly can. Well, if you're a company that your product is not shoes, but it's pharmaceuticals, it's drugs, you have entire departments devoted to how can we increase sales? Just like any other company, there's like a shoe yeah. company, how can we increase sales? Um, and now if everybody in that company are moral, ethical people with a conscience, you want, they're, they're not gonna be any problems. And I should say that already there's an issue in the world today where you, you have health and as health, as health goes down, profits go up, right? In, in the medical and pharmaceutical industries, that's a bad correlation, right? Yeah. Um, but it's there, it exists. And then if you have people running businesses like CEOs of companies, pharmaceutical companies in this case, who really have no morals or ethics, they're just, you know, they, they just care about increasing the, the bottom line, you know, the financial profits and bottom lines. Um, they can do things and come out with things and just have behaviors that are in their best interest for sure. But again, there's that opposite correlation not in the best interest of the general public. So an example I use a lot when people say, well, you didn't even graduate college. How are you telling me about things like about diabetes and things about like that? I said, well, if you go to an endocrinologist and he, he um, diagnoses you with type two diabetes and you happen to ask him, okay, well, I don't really know much about type two diabetes. How do I cure it? You're going to be told by mainstream endocrinologists that, well, there is no cure. I mean, we're working on a cure, but as of yet, there is no cure. And all you can do is manage it as best as possible. Uh -huh. that, that's the, you know, the party line. But then you come along with somebody, somebody like myself or any of my colleagues, and we say, oh, type 2 diabetes, you were just diagnosed with it, you weren't born with it. Oh, okay, you can get rid of it. There's a way to cure it. And, and let's say that's the truth. But that's just hypothetically for the moment. Let's say that that's the truth. That if you do certain things with diet, make sure to get enough of certain nutrients in your diet, and you're active enough, and you get enough sleep. Now you get rid of the type two diabetes and you don't have to be on any kind of medication. Well, if that's the case, and it is, what does that say about the medical industry? That's, an, that's a hell of an indictment of the medical industry. So when I point that out to people and I can show them evidence that, yeah, here's what you do to get rid of type two diabetes, when the endocrinologist says you can't do it, people are like well, some some of them wake up and are very thankful to hear the information because now they they know to get um you know, when you talk about a second opinion now you want a second opinion but a broad second opinion not, not just a second opinion from another medical doctor yeah you, it's good to get that of course especially if you're considering a surgery uh, or, or being put on a med but now you want second opinions more broadly um from these so-called alternative or complementary uh health practitioners. But of course, that opens up a whole can of worms because there are just like there are medical doctors 
who pretend you have cancer so they can treat you and make money. Did you know, by the way, that medical doctors cannot make any money off the prescriptions they write except one prescription, and that is chemotherapy drugs. That's, that amazed me when I discovered that. They can do chemotherapy drugs and give chemotherapy drugs in their office right, as a, as an out, on an outpatient basis. So they're allowed to make money. And what some medical doctors have done is diagnose somebody who comes in with a complaint as having cancer when they really don't have it. So they can put them on a chemotherapy drug, make all that money off the chemotherapy drugs, and then they get to cure the patient. And the patient just thanks them. Oh my God, thank you so much for curing me of my cancer. So, wow. just, so just as there are, and, and some of these doctors have been caught kind of by accident, but they've been caught and they've gone to prison. So there's a lot of ones that are still doing it that haven't been caught yet, because if they're careful, they can do this without being caught. So just as there are medical doctors, doctors who are actual medical doctors with a medical degree and everything who do that kind of stuff, there's also alternative practitioners uh, who do that kind of stuff, who, who recommend woo-woo things and things that really don't help, and they know it, but they, they make a lot of money off it. And then, But then there's another category of the alternative health practitioners who are very well-intentioned, just like you and I, very well-meaning, but they've just been miseducated. So they end up giving out certain uh, recommendations that are really not in the, in, the, in the client's best interest, so to speak, okay? Mm-hmm. Where if, if that client spoke to somebody like you or I, they'd get much better information. So no, understanding all this just blows people's minds that, okay, so not only can I not trust medical doctors or you know, not automatically trust them, and, and I should go look at alternative practitioners, but now amongst the alternative practitioners, I really gotta be careful to find out the ones who are charlatans, outright charlatans, and, and, and the really good charlatans, it's tough to know who they are by just, because they're good at what they do at fooling you, right? So you gotta make sure they're not a charlatan, make sure the information they have is, is top quality information. So it's a lot of research as opposed to just making a phone call, making an appointment with a medical doctor, going to see him, and the only thing you have to read is what it says on the pill bottle. Take one pill twice a day. That's all they have to read is what's on the pill bottle, right? They don't have to read books and websites and all this stuff. So it's a daunting task, but if you really, really, really care about your health and about your future health, it's worth it to do it. So back, back to what's going on today. Um, we understood, myself and my colleagues and people who studied va- the vaccination issue, because I wanted to know if vaccinations had any kind of efficacy, if they were really good. Um, I, I started to get suspicious when I saw that the amount of vaccinations on the childhood schedule when I was a child was five, and now it's 72. So I'm like, okay, okay, wait a second. Now, wait a minute. What has happened in in the intervening, you know, 55, 60 years, closer to 70 years for me, that would require so many more vaccinations? I didn't hear about any childhood pandemics over the last, you know, 55 years. What's going on? And then someone schooled me on this and said, you know, taught me about finances and about the way businesses work. Well, they're just trying to maximize the product sales. So they just keep coming up with stuff. And I said, well, how do they get away with that? Ah, well, see, there's the thing. If you want to get away with something, like you want to sneak, like let's say you want to sneak into a, a college library at night. You're not allowed to be there. You're not even a student, but you want to sneak into that library there's no, nothing nefarious about what you want to do. You want to do some research and you want to sneak in there. Well, do you try and just 
break in or, or do you slip the guard, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 bucks, influencing <laughs> the guard to let you in. Now you can be there. You don't have to be worried. You don't have to be looking over your shoulder. So this is in a sense what some corporations do. They influence those entities that could squash them and stop them from doing bad things that end up making them tons of money. So in the case of the pharmaceutical industry, they influenced the politicians and the regulators so that they would do certain things that work in the pharmaceutical industry's best interest. Uh, but again, it always works against our best interest when that happens. And then they influence the media. Now, how would you influence the media? You would just run ads, just give them millions of dollars for ads that don't even make you any money. Now think about that. Ronnie, you own a business, let's say, and you want to run an ad on television. Would you run that ad week after week, month after month, year after year, if it showed that it wasn't making you any profit on the ad? In other words, you took the sales that came in from the ad, took the profits, and then deducted from that how much you spent on the ads. And you better be you know, in the positive, in the black on that, right? If you're in the yeah. red and you're losing money, why would you continue to run those ads that lose sure. your money year after year? Well, I remember when they started running ads for prescription pharmaceuticals, not talking about over-the-counter pharmaceuticals, but prescription pharmaceuticals, right? I'm like, well, this is weird. I've never seen these before. Uh, didn't make any sense to me because you can't just walk into a medical doctor's office and say, uh, hi, Doc. I want you to write me a prescription for Ambien. Okay, yeah. there, Mr. Bennett. I'll write this out. There you go, and off you go. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. You can't buy prescription medications over the counter because they're by prescription. So why were they spending? And I started looking at the numbers and how much they were spending. I'm like, well, they can't be making this amount of money back. Oh, I get why they're why they're doing it. They're doing it because it's it's leverage free money. In other words, if if they were just running ads for over-the-counter medications and a news department of uh, a network was going to run a negative piece on, mm -hmm. on Pfizer, let's say, right? Because Pfizer was caught doing something wrong, and now the news media wants to report on it. Well, the news media knows that Pfizer can threaten all they want. If you run that, ad, if you run that piece, that news piece on us, uh, we'll pull our advertising and we won't advertise with you anymore. The network knows they can't stop advertising because they have competition. They lose tons of money. So they know that's an empty threat. Okay. The, the pharmaceutical yeah. company has no leverage. But when the pharmaceutical company runs ads that make them no money, yeah, they, they could stop those ads in a second. So that, so they have leverage over the, um, the networks. So the networks fall in line. So in the day, I don't know if you remember Walter Cronkite and Eric Severide. These were reporters way back when I was a little kid. They had ethics. They had morals. They would talk about the, the negative aspects of the Vietnam War, let's say. You would never hear any network like NBC talking about the negative aspects of a war today that yeah. go against the government agenda. But they did back then in, in Walter Cronkite's time, because back then they, there was a firewall between the advertising department and the news department so they didn't have to worry about stuff like that but not today so that's and by the way up until the time that those ads started appearing those ads for prescription pharmaceuticals no country in the world permitted ads for prescription pharmaceuticals on public airways including today today go to brazil go to spain go to italy go to the uk 
they don't allow ads for prescription pharmaceuticals on the airwaves. If you, were to, yeah. if you were to ask the health minister, well, why, why don't you? They'll say the same thing I just told you, because the only reason the, the pharmaceutical companies would run such ads is to be able to influence the television networks and influence the news department. So there was a time before, you know, 1972 or something where no country allowed it. And then all of a sudden the United States allowed it. Hmm. So that's called corporate capture of the of the regulators. Right. And then they were able to pour a lot of money into the uh, news media. Um, and then I don't want, I don't, we don't have time to talk about the revolving door between FDA and the pharmaceutical industry, but there's a revolving door there with people going from the, that industry to FDA. Now they're working at an FDA. They do some shenanigans. They quit. They go back and work for the pharmaceutical industry at a higher rate of pay. It's called the revolving door. It, it happens all the time. It's been happening for decades. It's usually to fast track a, a new drug. But with vaccines, we knew a long time ago, they're not going to stop with the children. They can't just go past 72 and say, okay, now it's 5,000 for the children. Children grow up. They're no longer children. They become adults. We knew 25 years ago that they were going to go after the teenagers with something. And then out came Gardasil a number of years ago, right? Uh, and then they were going to go after the adults. And if you're sitting, if you're part of a department that, that tries to figure out, well, how can we maximize our profit? Well, let's get everybody to think they need a vaccine for something to protect them. We don't want to wait till they get sick. If we wait till they get sick and they get a medication, that's not as good as everybody thinking, hey, I better take this, whatever it is, to prevent getting sick, because now your market is 7 billion plus people. Everybody. It's everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's what they wanted from the beginning. Uh, kids, teenagers, adults, but they can't, you know, they got to be careful how they do it because they have to make the people want it and accept it. You know, getting a vaccination every few months or every month, I mean, they're going to get down to every month at some point. Um, so in studying the efficacy of vaccines, and some have efficacy and some do not, it's not like I'm throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. There are some that are helpful, but not all the ones that they sell that they push on us including the ones here this in fact this coronavirus um and a coronavirus is just another type of virus there's influenza viruses rhinoviruses coronaviruses all kinds of of though that category of viruses which just make you feel horrible for a week week and a half depending on your state of health of course um by the way somebody like myself when i get a flu virus when i my only symptom is loss of appetite that's it. Loss of appetite. Sure, I'm, not, sure. I'm not hungry. Maybe I'm not hungry for a week. Maybe I'm not hungry for a week and a half. No biggie. I still have energy. I, I posted a YouTube video of me running across a huge lawn at a park. And yeah. I, hadn't eat, I hadn't eaten in 21 days. Why didn't I eat for 21 days? I wasn't hungry for 21 days. So I believe in respecting the body. Now on, on day 22, Hunger returned and like, oh boy, I've got melons ready, ready to go here. <laughs> but that's for somebody like me. I'm in reasonably good health compared to the general population. So for the general population, a flu virus, which does, by the way, kill 30 to 80,000 people a year. The flu viruses in the United States, 30 to 80,000 people a year, depending on the virulency, the virulency of the, um, of the virus. Now, and it's going to be the same for a coronavirus. A coronavirus is structured a little bit differently from an influenza virus. Uh, 
influenza viruses can affect children rather dramatically. You've got to be careful with children with flu viruses. But the coronavirus doesn't really affect very, very young kids. So when I'm seeing, as I walk around here in South Florida, all these young kids being forced to wear masks, it's ridiculous. They don't need to wear them. They're not in any danger. Yeah. Unless they're born with some kind of ill health condition, then they could be. Because those are the people who are in danger of losing their lives from contracting SARS-CoV-2, this, this coronavirus, is those with comorbidities, um, you know, ill health, basically, ill health issues, especially, especially respiratory ill health issues, um, which is generally the elderly. So yeah, let's, let's protect the elderly. If you want to quarantine the elderly, the, the ones who are most capable of, of, of getting, you know, uh, sick and dying from it because of their ill health, their state of health, uh, that's fine. We don't. We never needed to quarantine everybody. That was a colossal failure. The, the harm was much worse than 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 it helped because it really didn't help much at all. Um, people are saying, "Oh, we got to stop. We got to we got to end this." We're never ending this coronavirus. You you never end an influenza virus. You never end a flu virus. It keeps going around and around until everybody's gotten it. And once everybody has gotten that particular strain. It still goes around, it's still around, but no one can get it anymore. Mm. So all these strains of these various viruses are always with us. They've always been with us. And if you're in really good health, you lose your appetite for a week or two weeks or whatever it is. Um, while my standard American diet eating friends look like death warmed over, bedridden, but they got, mm. they've got exposed to the same flu virus I did. Yeah, They're yeah. Like, they, they just like, Oh, shoot me now, you know, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and there <laughs> I am flying through it, saving money because I'm not buying any fruit. So, I mean, it's great. <laughs> I do lose some weight and I don't have a lot of weight to lose, but it's still, you know, you lose five or seven or 10 pounds, whatever it is over the course of a week or two. Not a big deal. I'll get it back once I start eating. But the savings, the money, the monetary savings on the fruit I did not have to buy. I get to buy myself a gift now. So yeah, I, I look forward to flu viruses. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you think? I mean, there's a few things here that to me, um, let's go through some of the, the facts. I mean, firstly, how deadly was it in comparison to flu? I think that might be interesting to know. How, for, for example, effect, um, what, impact of any did the lockdowns have did they have more of a negative impact what about the use of masks what about the use of hand sanitizers um closing down schools like and and then getting to the vaccines does has any of this uh, had any effectiveness or any truth behind it another thing i want to ask about is it seems pretty clear to me that the numbers it seems the numbers have been presented in such a way to really bump them up. And it seemed quite obvious. Like, it wasn't like they were trying to hide that. It was like deaths. But in the UK, it was a COVID death was a death for any reason within 30 days of someone receiving a PCR positive test. And at one point, it was any reason within three months of a positive PCR test. And they took away some of those statistics at one point. So... I mean, it, it just, I, I can't imagine those statistics haven't been made that way to inflate them. I just can't see how that's not the case. Um, it, is, it is quite, it is quite obvious. 
you got to remember, if the reason for wanting to come out with these vaccines, let's just hypothetically assume this for the moment, was to just make trillions of dollars from the sale of these vaccines. Again, what's going to be done? And remember that the pharmaceutical industry as a whole has a lot of influence over FDA and CDC. And I, I don't, we don't have the time to get into who holds the patents on all these things like the mRNA technology and the sure. vaccines themselves. Because some of these patents for the vaccines that we're having that are being circulated today to deal with this were filed in uh, 2015. Now that should make you go, hmm, well, wait a minute. <laughs> How did they, huh, what? All right, so when you start uncovering these things, which most people don't look at, and then you realize, now, wait a second, why is the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services um, incentivizing hospitals to put people on ventilators? Now, people say, well, what do you, how can they be incentivizing hospitals to, to put people on ventilators? That should be a doctor decision if someone needs to go on a ventilator or not. Well, what was happening is the Department of Health and Human Services would give to a hospital, I think it was 15 grand for every COVID patient had to be someone who tested positive for COVID that had to be put on a that was put on a ventilator. Let's put it that way. If someone was put on a ventilator and they were tested positive for COVID, the hospital would get 15, an additional 15 grand, just given 15 grand for that. When normally that never happens. People get put on ventilators all the time. Hospitals don't get any money for that. So now hospitals and I'm, I'm not talking about the doctors and nurses, because most doctors and nurses are doing what they do for the same reasons you and I do what we do. They really care. But the people at the top of the hospitals that are run as a for-profit business, they're like $15,000. They tell the doctor staff that they're, they're, their staff put people on ventilators. Here, here's, here's your criteria for putting people on ventilators. So what nurses started coming out and reporting was that people were being put on ventilators when they didn't need to be when yeah. maybe C CPAP or BiPAP would have been fine. And, and here's the fact, if you put somebody on a ventilator that doesn't need to be put on a ventilator, that increases their risk of death because there are drugs that have to go along with putting somebody on a ventilator. Well, so if they didn't need to be, you're increasing their risk of death. If they needed to be, well, then there's a different ratio that you have going on there. Um, so, th so there was a financial incentive. Now, now, what about the testing positive for COVID? hospitals were given a $30,000 in the United States, a $30,000 incentive. If someone who died, uh, it was put down in the death certificate, the cause of death was COVID-19. If COVID-19 was listed as the cause of death, they get $30,000. That's never happened before. Mm -hmm. if, someone, if someone goes into the hospital with the flu and doesn't make it out, they don't get any money from the Department of Health and Human Services. So you know, we're trying to figure out, well, why is this? Well, there was just, we're trying to help the hospitals to keep from going broke, having to deal with all these. Well, they're not going to go broke. They get paid for everything that goes on, usually through insurance, whether it's Medicaid, Medicare, or whatever it is. So why all these extra incentives? Then you've had, in other words, as you probably know about me, I like looking at things on balance, all things considered. And with, with this, all that's been going on for the last two years, there's tons of things to consider to try and come to some kind of conclusion, not just one or two things. The PCR test, the inventor of the PCR test has said it was never meant to be used the way it was used during COVID-19. It was used in a way that would 
end up giving a lot of false positives, which, oh, what do you know? It did. Why were false positives good? Again, if you were in an auto accident and you lost a lot of blood and the ambulance rushed you to the hospital and they swabbed your cheek as you came in going to the, you know, to the operating room, if that PCR test shows positive and there are a lot of false positives and you died on the operating table because just loss of blood, they just could not save you. What goes on your death certificate? COVID-19. They were admitting they were doing this. Yeah, yeah. And and so there's another $30,000 there for the hospital. So so there were these financial incentives and what the incentives did was bump up the numbers, make it look like it was a lot worse than it really was. Now we've had some time to look back and factor out some things and factor in some things like I just spoke about. It looks like it wasn't, COVID-19 is not any more deadly. Assuming you don't go to the hospital, you got to factor that out. If you go to the hospital and get put on a ventilator, that increases your risk of death and you die. Well, you got to factor that out. Okay. If you factor out the things that were improving people's possibility of dying, um, it's not, it wasn't any more deadly than a, a bad year of the flu. And again, in the United States, 30 to 80,000 people die every year from the flu. And you got to factor in treatment. When some people get the flu, there are treatments which help, which end up helping to prevent the more sickly people from dying. But nobody was being treated with anything for this particular viral infection, right? They were coming to the hospital, you intubate them, or maybe they put them on corticosteroids, but they weren't putting them on enough, which improved their risk of dying, increased their risk of dying. But why is that good? Well, again, anyone who dies in the hospital from COVID-19, another $30,000 for the hospital. So there was a video, I don't know if you saw it, of a hospital administrator on a Zoom call with um, other administrative personnel, basically saying, okay, you know, we not coming right out and saying, let's kill them if we can, but basically saying, all right, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. That's gonna be our policy. Let's tell all the doctors on staff. But one of the people on the Zoom call were like, that's, that's gonna increase their risk of dying. And wow. became, became a whistleblower, took the recording, because you can record Zoom calls like you're recording this one, and they just put it on YouTube and it went out there. And then they put it on BitChute and other ones, showing this hospital, this one hospital administrator deciding to do behaviors that would definitely you know help the hospital benefit the hospital financially but would make it more possible for people to die and that's horrible but again if you have no morals if you have no ethics if you're a sociopath if you have sociopathic tendencies you can do this stuff and you know look at yourself in the mirror just fine sleep just fine and there's it's been estimated ronnie that in the united states i don't know how it is in the uk but in the united states there's approximately 12 million sociopaths. (laughs) And I have to think that some of them are CEOs and heads of hospitals. Yeah, so uh, um, obviously that's, as as you're saying, this could be a a longer conversation, but I I would like to get back to you actually, if we can. And, but maybe maybe at the end you can maybe let people know where they can find some more of the resources you've got on that. But um, back to yourself, for you personally, when did this journey start for you? Because you obviously, uh, as you said, you weren't always into health research and all that. So at what point 
did you start making changes yourself to your diet and lifestyle? It was when I saw I was a I was a teenager and I saw people in my family dying at around 65 from some horrible condition. And then I saw my grandparents living to over 100 in reasonably good health. So I, I that was an aha moment. I said, wait a second. How are they? This is all in my family. How are grandma and grandpa living to over 100 in reasonably good health and other people dying at 65 from some horrible condition? Now, genetics may have played a small part in that, but when I started looking at how everyone was living and just no, and I should say noticing how everyone was living, I noticed a very big difference between how my grandparents lived and how other people in my family were living. It was a big difference. So mm -hmm. my grandparents, they did eat fruit, they did eat vegetables, they ate some cooked food, but the majority of their diet was fruits and vegetables because cooked food, you know, animal products were expensive and they, had, they were on fixed, fixed income. So they were eating just you know, less expensive stuff, fruits and vegetables. They buy the bananas on, on the manager special kind of thing to save money uh, and to buy meat that was very expensive. So they didn't really buy much. So they ate healthier than the other people in my family and they were active and, and, and they kept stress to a minimum. Other people in my family, not active, stressed out, blah, 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 blah. Um, so I, I noticed it was lifestyle. That was the big difference. So I said, all right, I want to go the way my grandparents are gonna go. At a ripe old age of nothing specific, you just go to sleep and you don't wake up the next day. Not like these other people dying at 65 of some horrible condition. So I said, all right, let me see what I have to do. Let me look at how, what my diet is like. So I started just looking at diet and there was no internet in those days. So, and you couldn't go to the library and get a book on, you know, look in the health section and find raw books from Tilden and Shell. You, you just couldn't find those books. So I had to start thinking, I'm like, wait a second, is what I'm eating, how can I look at this? All right, is what I'm eating what I would have been eating 100,000 years ago? Let's start from that. Because if, if, if it was, all right, I can't use that to help me. Well, wait a second, 100,000 years ago, I could not have been cooking anything that I was eating. We, we didn't start cooking stuff until we kind of roamed out of paradise and roamed into colder climates where we had to be able to cook animals in order to survive. So before we were hunter gatherers, we were foragers because you hear everyone talking about, oh, in the days of when we were hunter gatherers, no one ever talks about what we were before we were hunter gatherers because we were something. And that was foragers, like a lot of the primates today, they forage. It's kind of like what you do when you go to the supermarket, you forage, right? sure, you're looking sure. for stuff to buy. Um, so I said, I wouldn't have cooked anything. So I decided based on that, on that realization, I said, all right, I'm just not going to eat anything that I have to cook. I came to that conclusion and made that like a promise to me. Now, as soon as I made it, I'm thinking, well, what am I going to eat? Oh my God. All right, wait, calm down. Don't get nervous. I like fruit. You don't have to cook fruit. I like vegetables. You don't have to cook it. All right, there'll be plenty for me to eat. So I had to calm myself down because I made that decision not to cook anything anymore. And let's see what happened. And I, I started feeling better. Now, I thought I was feeling pretty good, but I started feeling a little bit better, having more energy, needing less sleep. When you look at criteria like how much sleep do you need? Well, how much sleep would you want to get? As little as possible, because the more you're awake, the more fun you can have. Very difficult to have fun when you're just sleeping. 
um, unless you have really, really good dreams, but beside that. Um, so I said, all right, I'm feeling better. And this is good. Um, I don't know. I didn't know why I was feeling better. I didn't know what the damage was that cooked food did to you um, or, or the damage you do to food when you cook it. Also, there's that aspect of it. But I said, I don't care. I'm, I'm feeling better and I'm going by logic. I'm going by logic. Ronnie, who was my favorite character as a kid on TV? Mr. Spock from Star Trek. I love that character because he was pure logic. He didn't get emotional. Well, usually. And I like that because I never, I didn't like when my parents fought. That was very emotional. It was very traumatic for me. I don't like fighting. I don't like getting emotional about things. So I like Mr. Spock because he could carry out a logical, rational conversation with people who may be trying to get a little emotional on him, but he wasn't having any of it. He would just say, well, logic dictates, Captain, that we not blah, 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 whatever it was. So I, I patterned my thinking after Mr. Spock, trying to think logically and rationally and not let emotions come into the picture because that's just going to influence or color my judgment. And as I found out later from researchers, real researchers, they said, oh yeah, you don't, as a researcher, you can't let anything color your judgment. You can't have any biases, whether they're yours or anyone else's. You've got to be on the lookout for them to make sure they're not influencing you in any way. So I'm like, okay, I'm already there. I'm already doing that. This is cool. Hey, I'm a researcher. I didn't know I was a researcher. <laughs> um, so I, I just started making other changes into diet. Well, that was a huge one, of course, not eating anything cooked. Um, and then I discovered just, you know, the easier, like when, you, when you're going to snack on something, right? You're going to snack on a piece of fruit, Ronnie, people who you know snack on fruit. Do they snack on five different pieces of fruit? No, they snack on one piece of fruit. Yeah. So if I if I considered one piece of fruit a snack, why wouldn't I consider one piece of fruit a meal? And I might mean I don't mean quantity of one, I mean just one item. One item as a meal. Now, so if I eat a banana and I'm still hungry, still want I still want more bananas, I'll just keep eating more bananas instead of just eating an apple or a pear. Why is it an apple? And not an pear. Why is it a apple, a pear? Okay, well, we'll figure that another time. That's another episode. Um, so I just started being very logical about what I thought about. And then, then it hit me one day, wait a second, it's not just diet. What else am I not doing right? There's, there's, there's got to be other aspects to health other than diet. What about activity? In my experience, I've seen people either being way too active or way too inactive. I said, okay. That's what I've noticed. What's the sweet spot? What's mm -hmm. right there in the middle? The truth often lies somewhere in the middle. So I don't want to be overactive and I don't want to be underactive. Uh, so I had to try and figure out, well, let's see, what would that be? Well, what did I used to do? 100,000 years ago, what did I do? I walked, probably walked a lot. I climbed some and every once in a while I'd sprint to run away from danger. Well, let me do that today. That's how I came to my conclusion of what is the most natural way to stay you know, active and, and be fit and not overdo it and not underdo it. Just do a lot of whatever you were gonna do 100,000 years ago when we lived in the wild, in nature. And we didn't have to be anywhere by a certain time. There was no concept of time. So there was no running to make a meeting over at cave 32 or anything like that, right? There, there was no concept of that. So we would do a lot of walking. So that's what I do today. A lot of walking, I will sprint once a week that's about 12 seconds of running. So I do, I do 10 minutes of running per year. So when people say, are you a runner? I'm a runner. I run 10 minutes a year, <laughs> which is a total of about 
12 seconds or 15 seconds a week. Um, but I got to feel like doing it. If I don't feel like sprinting that day, I let it go. Are you, are you against like longer distance running? Well, yeah, the way, the way people run today, and again, not my opinion, is you talk to um, what's the, the, the kind of medical doctor that ends up doing the orthoscopic surgery, uh, I forget the name of that kind of a doctor, orthopedist, okay? Before the running craze started, orthopedists were kind of rare. Today, you can, you can throw a rock and you can hit an orthopedist. They're all over the place because tons of cartilage have been removed from people's knees and other joints due to this long distance running thing. It takes its toll. I, you know, I'm not a little kid anymore. I had friends that I've grown up with since I was 20 and I'm getting closer to 70 today. So I've been friends with them their whole life. They were avid runners. They can't run anymore. They've ruined their knees. And now they gotta be on drugs to deal with anti, you know, antidepressive drugs because now they're getting depressed because they can't give themselves that daily or every other day jolt of um, endorphins, okay? Um, so it, it's, it's a bad thing. So you don't wanna do too much, you don't wanna do too little. It's the same thing with eating. You don't wanna overeat, you don't wanna undereat. It's the same thing with sunshine. You don't wanna get too much sunshine, you don't wanna get too little sunshine. The only thing you can't get too much of is sleep. Even water, you can get too little, too much. So you just, you got to find these sweet spots. So that's what I focused on over the last, you know, 30, 40 years. What, what is the sweet spot for whatever it is that affects or that can affect your health, whether it's diet, exercise, um, hydration, stress management? Yeah. So what's like a typical day for you then when it comes to your diet and maybe other things that you're focusing on for health preservation and, and building your fitness, building your health? A typical day regarding diet is every day I will eat something. <laughs> That's about it. What, what, I eat, what I eat, I have nothing to do with that. I, I, I just eat whatever my body wants, is in the mood for. And hopefully I have it in my kitchen. If I'm in the mood for something that I don't see in my kitchen, I either got to go pick second best or go to the store and then look in the produce section to see. And I've done that a number of times. Again, if you were to ask me, well, what was it that you didn't see in your kitchen? I don't know. I only know that what I was, my body wanted, it was not seeing. So maybe it that's changes. the way we're... Well, it changes all the time for you. Oh, well, of course. And yes, there'll, there'll be times when I'm really into mangoes and times I'm not. And it has nothing to do with seasonability of it. There are... There are times during mango season when I just, I'm, my body doesn't want mangoes. It wants something else. So because I eat mono meals, a meal of just one item, when you eat a meal of just one item, it's very easy for the body to go ahead and make a database and say, okay, this item, he's calling it a banana. Oh, it's a funny name, but okay, I'll write it down as banana. And here's what it looks like this banana is really good at, good for and not good for, et cetera. And here's a mango. So when your body gets low in a particular nutrient and it wants to top that one off, it looks in a database and says, all right, what's the best source of XYZ nutrient? And your body will give you a, a Jones, an appetite for that. And then <laughs> hopefully, hopefully you have it in your kitchen. Now, I don't expect people who are brand new to this, who are watching this thing saying, oh, I'm going to do a raw vegan diet. Okay, I'm going to start up by eating mono meals and I'll rely on my database. It takes a while for this database to develop and that's once you start eating mono meals. 
Okay. If you're always making smoothies and recipes and things, you know, you can, you can make smoothies how many different ways, Ronnie, right? Uh, you don't give them each a different name. You call them a smoothie and your brain can't make a database because how do, you're not giving different names to these things. So the brain, the brain can't like say, okay, this is the banana such and such smoothie. It can't do that, but it can do it with one singular thing, which is how we evolved. You know? So if, you, if you're going to go and shop for your fruits and vegetables, do you have to buy quite a broad range and then store it and then just see where you're getting what you feel like? Yeah, there are certain staples, of course. I mean, um, you know, I'll, I'll always, pretty much always have bananas with me and I'll pretty much, they don't go to waste. Every once in a while, there'll be some that just get overripe and I have to compost them or, or toss them because I just wanted other things. My body, I should say, wanted other things. So the bananas I had, but you know, you get good after a while of realizing how much you should keep of certain things in the house. But there will be some things that you end up composting. You know, in other words, don't force yourself. I, I knew somebody once, his name was Jeff, and he would not throw any food away. He couldn't do it. So he would eat it before it got spoiled and even if it got spoiled. So he ate some spoiled avocado. He got sick, very sick from it. He got food poisoning from it. And he was one of these natural hygienists who would not, under any set of circumstances, go to a doctor or hospital. So he died. So oh, God. Yeah, so you got to be really careful of your philosophies. <laughs> you got to be really, you know, as far as if food is not good, don't eat it anyway because you paid money for it. I know you paid money for it, but just give it back to the earth, um, compost it in some yeah. respect, or give it to somebody who, who does composting if you don't. Um, but don't force yourself to eat something just to keep from totally throwing it away. Um, and in the beginning, you might, you know, get on one side or the other of that perfect place to be. So you might not have the foods you want or you might have so much extra where you end up getting rid of so much of it but over time you'll you'll get that down to where to where you need it to be but so you asked me you know typical day there is no typical day with eating um it's just whatever my body is in the mood for um that's what i'll eat and and i eat when i'm hungry i know this may sound weird to a lot of people watching this but i only eat when i'm hungry and I never eat when I'm not hungry, <laughs> right? But isn't that the way every other animal on the planet eats and the way we probably ate when we sure, uh, sure. were wild 100,000 years ago? And it's so automatic, isn't it? I don't have to, I don't have to, that's why I tell people that I counsel, get those words out of your dictionary, out of your vocabulary, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Get them out. They're the worst words to have because if you're gonna have breakfast, when do you have that? It's got to be before 12 noon, because at 12 noon, that's lunchtime. <laughs> so, um, and, oh, but breakfast is the most important meal of the day, and you break your fast. You're not fasting when you're sleeping. You're just not eating when you're sleeping. A fast is the body saying, don't eat. I, yeah, I, it's you're funny. Awake. I, had a, I had a conversation with someone, and they were talking about these, I think they said something like, when you sleep, you're dry fasting. And I said, no, you're not dry fasting when you sleep. <laughs> Your body's in a completely different state, requires less water. Like, you know, it's not the same situation. I, 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 I get what they're saying, but they're, they're trying to connect that practice to something that's completely normal and natural. Um, right. um, but uh, 
Well, that's that. I mean, that that's uh, that's great, John. Is there any particular? I mean, that advice, and I think that's what everyone's moving towards is uh, that kind of approach. For a beginner, would you give them a program to follow in particular, or would you try and encourage them to do the same thing? Or no, I I, I coach very differently from a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people have even asked me, just tell me what to do. Tell me what to eat. Tell me what to do. And I'll just do it. I don't do that. I want, you know, that expression about, what is it? Um, give, a, give a man a fish he eats for a day. This is a bad expression, by the way, but it's the official expression. <laughs> give a man a fish to eat. He can eat for a day, but teach him how to fish. He can eat for his lifetime. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, teach somebody how to eat as opposed to telling them what to eat and here's a plan. I mean, you can give them certain parameters. You can, you can give them things like, you know, if you're only eating one banana at a meal, that was not a meal. And if you mm. do the number, if you do the numbers, if you use chronometer to do the numbers, and by the way, chronometer is useful for some things and not for others. So if you use chronometer just to see how many calories you're getting per day and how many calories you used to get, or rather how many calories you need, that's even more important. I wrote an article. It's uh, if you go to health101.org, forward slash art underscore calories, mm -hmm. uh, you'll see that article. Actually, if you go here, I created this page just for this, uh, this podcast. It's health101.org forward slash love fruit. One word, love fruit. If you go there, um, you'll get about 12 of my hundreds and hundreds of articles that I've written that were voted on most helpful and most beneficial by the people who read my articles. So I asked, I took a survey. That's what I got. I took those 12 and I put it there. Uh, also, if you go there and if you'd like a complimentary copy of one of my eBooks that are normally for sale, if you'd like them for free, because you're here on this podcast, you can get them for free. So just go to uh, here, uh, health101.org forward slash love fruit. And it'll have the explanation of how to get the uh, ebooks uh, for free and, and those articles will be there and a lot, a lot of great stuff is there excellent excellent yeah um uh, so getting back to i guess the the story of what happened with with you 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 changed your diet did you notice any major impacts on you when you changed your diet in the first um well, let's say when you changed to a vegan diet initially, and then when you changed to the raw diet, did you notice different things happening to your body and mind? Well, yeah, uh, there is no doubt. It, again, when you start making, I tell people, when you go from a diet of 50-50 raw cooked to 60-40 raw cooked to 70-30 to 80-20 to 90-10, you'll get, you'll feel a very subtle 10% improvements. Now, if you came to the diet with certain health issues, and you start getting cooked animal products out of your diet, you'll feel a lot better, a lot quicker because you're already coming in with some issues. But I didn't come to this diet with any issues. I just started figuring out how should I be living so that I can live to what we all have. We all have a health potential and a longevity potential. There's no way to mm -hmm. quantify what it is and there's no way to compare one person to another, but we all have a health potential. Mm -hmm. And I have mine and I wanted to live to whatever mine is. So I said, what have I got to do to live to my health potential? That's the decision I made when I was a, a teenager about to not be a teenager anymore. I said, all right, I got to get my diet to be what I'm designed to eat, uh, exercise and make sure I get enough sleep 
if I have to go to bed earlier, I realize waking up to an alarm clock, no good. So I got to go to sleep earlier so that I can wake up before the alarm clock goes off. Okay, got that down. So I just, and I made all these, I basically discovered natural hygiene. I yeah. invented natural hygiene for myself. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know there was any such thing until I met somebody who said, who, when they found out about me, they said, oh, you're one of those natural hygienists. I'm like, what is that? I've only heard hygienist using the term of a dental assistant or something. Sure. What's a natural hygienist? Someone who, wa who washes themselves all the time? I don't understand. Yeah. I said, no, it's a bunch of crazy people who live the way you do. They don't eat any cooked food. And I'm like, really? There's other people who live this way? Oh my God. Yeah, they're having a, they have a, a conference up at Hofstra University out in Long Island, which is about an hour drive from me. I'm like, if you're kidding me with this, you're in big trouble. But I went and checked it out. There they were. I went in 90 people who lived like I do. Or, uh, you know, and I was yeah, like, yeah. I, t I started crying, Ronnie. I, it brought a tear to my eye because I thought I was the only crazy maniac in the world who was going to be living like this. Who else would live like this? Uh, most people are not very introspective and, and questioning everything and caring about their health. So I, I just figured I'm not going to meet other people who live the way I do. What's the odds of that? And there they were, 90 people just an hour from where I was living. So I had so much fun meeting people, older people, old guys. He said, oh, how old do you think I am? I said, oh, I'm pretty good with this. 65? He was 90. Wow. But he had been living natural hygiene since he was like sure. 18. So, okay. <laughs> so I was like so happy. But then I started finding out the politics in natural hygiene. Interesting, yeah. You know, stuff like that. Um, so what, what what was the question again? Uh, yeah, yeah, good uh, good question. I'm not sure. I was just enjoying listening to you there, to be honest. But there's there's a there's a few things that uh, that are occurring to me because I I get the the thought process you went down initially, which was, you know, you you were looking into what was natural, what our ancestors would have done. So you're, you know, you're waking up with an alarm clock. You're cutting out. You're eventually cutting out the foods that you don't cook and so on. Um, but I know there's some other refinements to the raw vegan diet you make. For example, nightshades. I think that there's a lot of raw vegans who wouldn't want to say they can't live without tomatoes, you know, but I think that you are not so positive on things like tomatoes and, and even avocados and I don't know how much nuts and seeds or whatever. So there's, uh, what are some of your thoughts on some of those things? Yeah, I, I came to discover some things and, and, and my bad for not continuing to research and just assuming, okay, I got it. Nothing cooked, no animal, and I'm good to go. It turns out it's not as simple as that. <laughs> um, unless I can buy it, build a time machine and go back 100,000 years ago and just live and eat and, you know, from the wild, then I don't have to think about anything. And we didn't have to back then. So long story short, I don't know, maybe it was four or five, year, five years ago now, I started getting arthritis. I think it was four years ago. And I said, now, wait a second. I know what arthritis feels like. I mean, just from studying it and counseling people who had it, how, how am I getting arthritis in, in a joint on, on a finger, on a hand, and in, in my toe? And so it's just starting out. This is what it's like when arthritis just starts out. How am I getting arthritis? All right, let me go into my database. I've counseled people who had arthritis. I've helped them get rid of it. What did I recommend to them? What were they doing? Let me go look. So I went into my database. And I'm saying, well, I'm not doing that. 
I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. Oh, wait a second. Oh, really? Nightshade foods? Tomatoes? Bell peppers? Oh, of course. Oh, my God. I was eating a bunch of tomatoes and bell peppers as part of my diet. There was a local a surgeon who worked at a hospital locally. He loves tomatoes. I think a little too much, Ronnie. But he loved tomatoes. And so he could, not, he could not buy tomatoes from the store because they're cardboard. You know, they taste like cardboard. So he grew his own tomatoes in, in rich soil, nutrient-rich soil. And these, tom- these cherry tomatoes were like candy. I mean, they were like candy. But he didn't do anything to them other than just have really, really good soil. So I would get a bunch of them from him. And I loved, you know, I loved these cherry tomatoes. And I'd have red bell peppers every now and then. And, but that's when I realized, oh, right, nightshades. And, and there's a whole technical bunch of reasons why they can contribute to arthritis over time, very slowly over time. So I just put an immediate stop to them and said, all right, they're not even tropical foods. Don, what's wrong with you? You're not even tropical foods. You're not thinking. You're just, you were so happy just to, and you went off on something else and exercise and sleep and hydration. You didn't fully research diet completely. Um, so when I realized there were nightshade foods that are not tropical, shouldn't be eating them. So it wasn't just fruit. It had to be specific fruits that we were designed for. Now I'm lucky in South Florida, I can get mame. And if I go to the Woodstock Fruit Festival, and I'm assuming to the UK Fruit Festival once a year, you can get mame. <laughs> uh, can you get mame at your festival? We've not, we've not had it yet, no. <laughs> you got to get it because of the Woodstock Festival. I mean, it's just all you can eat mame if that's all you want for the whole week. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. But, it, com- sure. but it, it comes from Florida. So yeah. um, I can get it down here when it's in season. So I'm very, very lucky in that respect. But uh, a lot of people can't. So we're designed for the tropical fruits. We're designed to be able to get some of the creamy tropical fruits like mame and black sapote and durian, which will supply just the proper amounts of fat and the right ratios of the omega-3s to the omega-6s. But there's a lot of people who only can lay their hands on what's called temperate zone fruit, apples, pears, berries, grapes, peaches, those kind of things. Now, what they all have in common is they're very, very super low-fat fruits. So you can't really live on them exclusively. That's why we have to do something to compensate. And what a lot of people do is then they compensate with the, the famous and the much, much beloved avocado. And I did too, until I did some more researching, just saying, well, wait a second now, wait a second. Is avocado, it's very fatty and I can't really make a meal. That's another test. Can you make a meal of the, of the food you wanna eat? Like, can you make a meal of cayenne pepper? No, you cannot. So I don't use any cayenne pepper. Can I make a meal of honey? Oh, well, not really. So I don't use honey. Can I make a meal of avocado? No, not really. I don't call that delicious. It's no, not, not delicious to me anyway. Mm-hmm. So I started researching it. Well, it's not really a tropical fruit. And it's again, not delicious on its own. Animals that eat it, and I've seen animals that eat it when it's out growing in, in, in farms and things, they just eat a little tiny bit. They don't eat the whole thing, even the bigger animals. They don't eat the whole thing. They just eat a little bit. Okay, so wait a second. Let's look into this now. And then I started to get technical-minded and look into the science of the omega-3s and the omega-6s and what's the ratio? What are we designed for? Turns out a one-to-one ratio is just automatically the best. But even mainstream nutritionists, Ronnie, even mainstream nutritionists will say, don't go above four-to-one in favor of the sixes. And the sixes, the omega-6s are the pro-inflammatory omegas. 
the omega-3s are the anti-inflammatory omegas. So we need enough of both because when the body wants to make inflammation, it better have enough omega-6s because if it can't make inflammation when it needs to, that's bad. And then when it wants to stop inflammation, it better have enough omega-3s. Okay, so taking in equal amounts or near equal amounts is a good thing. It turns out in tropical fruits that we're designed to eat, they have near equal amount, the, the creamy tropical fruits. The, the, the creamy tropical fruits are the ones with a decent fat content, like mame, for example. They have close to a one-to-one ratio or, or certainly under four to one or one to four in that range. Ronnie, an avocado, 17 to one in favor of the sixes. Ah, <laughs> right? That's not good. And I've known people who've crashed and burned eating too much avocado because they were getting way too much. Now, the, the body has to process both and, and they, it uses the same enzyme to process both and it has a finite amount of that enzyme per day. So if it's getting in 17 times more sixes in a day than threes and it's trying to process both, it's not going to be able to process enough of all. Mm. So the ratio, the ratio will happen where you'll get plenty of sixes, you'll get enough sixes, no problem there. Your body can make inflammation if it needs to but you didn't make enough threes. And you can even be taking in enough threes, technically, taking in a, a proper amount of threes, but because the body can't, because of so many sixes, it, it's called competitive inhibition. Because of so many omega sixes, it can't process all those omega threes that you took in. So now you've actually got an omega three insufficiency. And if that turns into a de- deficiency, you're in sorry shape. So that's why I say, you know, we don't need avocado, uh, it's not delicious by itself. I know a lot of people use it in, in making dishes and things. But again, just remember, 17 to 1 ratio. So it all depends on on how healthy do you want to be. And I think that was a question you were going to ask me at some point. It's like, what tips would I give people? Mm. Well, tip number one is before you make any decisions as far as what diet you want to eat or what exercise program you want to adopt, the first decision you should make is how healthy do you want to be for the rest of your life? And if you're a young person like we are, you have a long way to go. So how healthy do you want to be for the rest of your life? And, and pick, it, pick it on a scale of 1 to 10, right? With 10 being the healthiest that you can be and 1 being the least healthiest. So, and, and realize that the higher the number, the greater your odds of never getting a diagnosis of something serious. So I picked a 10. Once I thought about this concept of assigning a number to a level of health that I want, I said, well, obviously I want a 10. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's why I'm not eating cooked food anymore. No more dairy products, no more meat and all this stuff because I want to be a 10. Now, and if I can do it emotionally, which is not, you know, you can. Uh, and I had no support. Ronnie, I had no support <laughs> back when I just stopped eating cooked food. I all my friends tell me, oh, you're crazy. What are you talking about not eating cooked food? And I try to explain my reasoning. And, I, and they'd say, well, I hear nothing about this on the mainstream news or the health and the health and fitness editor on the, the networks, they're not saying anything about don't eat cooked food. And most of the 7 billion people eat cooked food. What's wrong with you? You need to be on meds, Don. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, didn't care. I knew what I knew. I knew how I came to the conclusion. I knew they were just, you know, conformist in, in, in a way. They were, they were just doing conformism. Um, but that's okay. I cared about my health. Again, I wanted to go like my grandparents. Over 100 died in their sleep of nothing in particular. That was my goal. I was even asked, what's your goal in life, Don? What's your goal? I was asked as a, uh, I think it was 22. What's your goal? I said, I want to die in my sleep at a ripe old age. 
And of course, they say, well, you got to be on meds, man. Well, how do you come up with something like that? Um, but so, so that's why avocado for me was out. Once I realized that it had such an imbalance in it, I'm like, it's not worth it. I, I don't like, you know, I don't get an orgasm when I eat avocado. If I did, it might have been tough to give up eating an avocado. But no, it's not, it's not really all that great. It's just common. It's common practice, but so is meat. And so is cooked food. And so is animal products. You know, that's common too. Mm -hmm. So if you don't care about doing what's common in the mainstream world, why should you care about doing what's common in an alternative, even in a vegan community or a raw vegan community? You don't necessarily want to do what's common. You want to do what's healthiest for you if you want to be a 10. Now, if you want to have avocado, well, you can't be a 10. So now you got to pick another number. So if you want to pick nine, you can have some avocado, but I prefer being a 10 and avocado, you know, what about salads and vegetables and cruciferous vegetables and different things? What's your, well, again, people ask me that I, I, I admin a Facebook group called the ultimate raw vegan fruitarian healing group, quite a mouthful, but uh, we get new people all the time. It's got 10,000 people in it now or 11,000 or something. But I get the, that question all the time. You know, what about, what should I have in my salads? So my question, my question would be, why a salad? Mm. We, invent, we invented the salad. I don't see any other primates eating salads. I'm talking about primates who eat a variety of foods in their diet. None of them gather things together and make a salad. Now, is that because they don't have a salad bowl? If you gave bowls to um, gorillas or chimpanzees or bonobos, would they say, oh, cool, now I can make salads. No, they don't have a salad. They, they eat mono meals. So if you're eating a mono meal, that wouldn't be a salad because a salad has multiple things in it. Um, I've had meals of just romaine lettuce. There were times when I just wanted romaine lettuce. Um, I was not getting enough minerals at the time, so I was really craving romaine lettuce. So, and I looked for the, the greenest romaine lettuce I could find because I discovered also that the cruciferous vegetables, which again, we didn't eat originally, not part of our original diet, they have an issue. Lettuce, by the way, is not a cruciferous vegetable, but the cruciferous veg vegetables are like kale, collards, um, broccoli, broccoli, cauliflower, and Brussels sprouts, things like that. But we're, we're definitely not much for vegetables in the first place. But so you'll hear people say, no, a raw vegan diet is, is fruit and greens, fruit and greens, fruit and greens. But what specific greens? Well, lettuces, romaine lettuce, there's butter lettuce, there's all kinds of lettuces. They don't have the same problem that kale does. And yet I see people walking around with t-shirts that say, I love kale. Imagine me having a conversation with that person about kale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, but, but cruciferous vegetables contain something which interferes with the body's utilization of iodine. I, I know people in UK pronounce it correctly. They pronounce it iodine. They don't pronounce it aluminum correctly they call it aluminium and that's wrong but that's another story <laughs> but, but iodine which is uh, there's iodine and iodide the two forms of the same thing it's a little different molecular structure of each one but one's the halide and one's a halogen i won't get too complicated with that but we need it's an essential nutrient that we need enough of to have really good antiviral properties antibacterial properties and who who doesn't want good antiviral properties nowadays, these last two years, right? Isn't it great to have good antiviral properties? So having enough iodine uh, for the body to have these good properties, antibacterial, antifungal, antimicrobial, even anti-tumor, 
well, you don't want to do anything because it's already a hard enough nutrient to get enough of to begin with. Some people have to take it as a standalone supplement. I take a standalone supplement because I just cannot get enough of it from the foods that I'm buying from agri-industry. So you don't want to eat anything like cruciferous vegetables, which interfere with your body's ability to utilize a little bit of iodine that you are taking in. So, and again, I don't miss kale. I don't miss bro broccoli. I don't miss Brussels sprouts. Can you imagine just having a meal of those things? Give, do the toddler test on them. Give a toddler a piece of ripe mango and give him a piece of broccoli. Which one is he going to want? You can look at it. So there's the toddler test and make a meal of a test. There's all kinds of tests you can do for these things, but then you can apply the science. So cruciferous things and, and people, Ronnie, people tell me all the time, but cruciferous vegetables have anti-cancer properties. Well, yes, they do. It's amazing how some, how, how one thing can have both benefit and detriment. Same thing for certain herbs. People take herbs. Oh, because it has this beneficial property. Yeah, but does the practitioner recommending that herb talk to you about the detrimental properties of that herb? And does he go on to say, you know, why don't you, instead of doing this herb that I sell, why don't you do this other thing, which only has the beneficial property of this herb and doesn't have the detrimental property of this herb? Well, he's not going to talk to you about that because he sells the herbs. So you have to do your own research to realize, okay, can I get the beneficial properties of the herb or the kale or the broccoli or whatever it is without the detrimental aspects? Because that's just logical, right? Because if you can, why wouldn't you? Sure, sure. Well, um, thank you very much, Don. And we're coming up to 90 minutes and I, I, I would love to keep on speaking to you longer, but um, maybe, maybe we can do that another time. And I know that you're going to come on our show at some point soon as well yeah that's going to be a week from today actually or i don't know when this is going to air but it's going to be friday the um i don't have a calendar in front of me but let's see probably yeah th this this interview will probably go out on the monday and we'll be speaking on friday right so next week this comes out on a monday and then uh five days later on a friday same bat time same bat channel uh we'll be here and um that's when I'd like to get into the things I didn't get into today, which is specific tips uh, to help people sure. who are new to this. And, and, and the thing that I specialize in, because I've counseled people almost 20 years now, and a lot of them have been raw vegans who failed to thrive over, over time. And we've heard some notable ones, right, with the big YouTube followings that crashed and burned on a raw vegan diet, have been doing it for a while. There are reasons, and yeah. these, are, these are avoidable reasons. And it's good not to get confused and, and be um, confused by the anti-vegan YouTube channels that say, well, see, I told you, I told you you couldn't thrive on a plant-based yeah, yeah, yeah. diet. So there's reasons for why it happens. There is reasons for why when they put animal foods back in their diet, their health popped back up. Mm -hmm. But again, why do something that has detrimental aspects to it also? Why not do something that can be plant-based so you can remain vegan and instead of supplementing with meat or eggs or dairy or whatever, you supplement something else, let's say, that's totally plant-based. So uh, that's, that's my area of specialty, why people fail to thrive on a raw vegan diet or, or why they can't fully resolve what they came to the diet to resolve. Excellent, Don. So I think two of the main things you were wanting to talk about and uh, go over was your advice for beginners 
and the mistakes that you see people making on this lifestyle. Would you like to go over those? Sure. Um, as I mentioned before, my number one piece of advice is first figure out how healthy you want to be for the rest of your life. You know, pick a number between one and 10 and with 10 being the healthiest you're capable of being. So if you pick 10, a lot of decisions are then going to be easy to make and give me no brainers. You're not going to have a hard time. Um, once when, when you realize what you need to do to, to be at a 10. Um, it's also important, and this what a lot, I've learned this from the years of uh, face, uh, admitting this Facebook group. A lot of raw vegans don't realize there's more than one kind of raw vegan diet. Uh, there are many different raw vegan diets and they go, oh really? That's why you can't use the, the phrase, I'm eating the raw vegan diet because there's different ones. So I'm eating a raw vegan diet. And like, okay, well, that means there's more than one. So which one are you eating? Because like, for example, there's the gourmet raw vegan diet, right? The gourmet raw vegan diet is going to have a lot of, you know, gourmet foods, uh, recipes that tend to have a little bit too much fat, um, in my opinion, but also actually it's kind of factual. <laughs> you can, you can actually get more fat on a raw vegan diet, a gourmet raw vegan diet than you did when you were eating the typical Western diet. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you got to be careful. You don't want too much fat and you don't want too little. Um, so it's important to understand that there's multiple raw vegan diets. Choose the one that you want that, that comports with how healthy do you want to be. And so if you choose 10, you want to try and adopt the healthiest of the raw vegan diets, which is the version that we talk about on our Facebook group, the uh, Ultimate Raw Vegan Fruitarian Healing Group on Facebook. Uh, number three is don't follow info that resonates with you. Now that may sound counterintuitive, but just don't necessarily follow that because what if the of this information what if this information that happens to resonate with you, you know, in other words, you like what you're hearing, what if it's not accurate? What if it's not entirely accurate? So it's good to follow info that squares with reality, is the way I like to put it. Uh, info that'll let you live to your health and longevity potentials. So just make sure, just whatever information comes in, make, make sure that it's accurate. Uh, seek the truth, though the heavens may fall. And a lot of people, when they realize that dairy products were not healthy for them, oh, they didn't like hearing that because they love them, their Haagen-Dazs ice cream and all that other stuff, boy. Um, but if you want the truth, even though the heavens may fall and you may hear something you don't like hearing, again, if your number one thing is you want to be a number 10, then, then you, you'll hear it and you'll embrace it. I say multi-source education is the best way to learn something. In other words, um, don't learn as a, a student following just one person. Learn as a researcher. So learn from a lot of different educators because then what you're likely to find when you learn from a lot of different, just even raw vegan educators, you'll find some information that doesn't square with each other, right? You'll, you'll find some contradictory information information that should be clearly in the realm of science and clearly in the realm of facts. So what's going on here? That's good. Now that may sound counterintuitive. You, you may say, no, I don't want to hear conflicting information. I want to hear everybody saying the same thing. Well, that's not going to happen. It doesn't happen in the typical Western diet world. Doesn't, you know, you've got hundreds of different diets there and you've got a couple of different diets in the raw vegan world and many different vegan diets. So you want to look for the conflicting information to see which of the conflicting information, which pieces is squares with reality and which doesn't. So learn as a researcher, not as a student. 
students don't tend to question what they're taught, right? They'll, they'll, they may raise their hand and ask a question of clarification from their instructor, but researchers question everything. It's nothing personal, it's just what they do because they recognize that this information is coming from human beings and human beings have the capacity to be incorrect about certain things. Um, so that was it. That was my that was my six pieces of advice for beginners. And again, if you would like a copy of um, my books at no cost, and if you want to read some of the other articles I have, just go to health101.org, which is my website, uh, forward slash love fruit, one word, love fruit, love fruit. Um, now, as far as the mistakes that I've seen people make, because again, this is what I specialize in, why people fail to thrive on a raw vegan diet when they shouldn't have, because, you know, it kind of gives the diet a bad name. You know, when you talk about a raw vegan diet, you know, you don't want seeing, seeing people crashing and burning after doing it for a number of years or a decade or so. And the reasons are this, there's just a few of them. They're not taking a first things first approach to health restoration. Okay, I see this all the time. Hey, I, people come to my Facebook group and they say, I've got XYZ, what should I do? And, and a lot of members start saying, you know, things like, well, take herbs and, and this particular herb and do this and colonic. It's not a first things first approach. So first things first, if you've got some kind of health challenge, some health issue, look at all your aspects of, of, of lifestyle practices, diet and exercise and sleep and all this to make sure you're doing everything, you know, as healthfully as possible before you start turning to remedies, right? That just makes sense because what, what if you're not eating a proper diet or getting enough sleep? You can take all the remedies in the world. They do not compensate for not getting enough sleep. There is nothing to compensate for not getting enough sleep as far as herbs or enemas or whatever you want to call it. Um, now, on the subject of fasting, because that comes up quite a lot, there's a lot of there's a lot of misinformation about fasting out there. Oh my God, there is so much misinformation about fasting. Mm. Fasting, when the body isn't calling for it, is not good. And not fasting, when the body is calling for it, is equally not good. Now, they're both not good for different sets of reasons, but that's the point I'm making. So if you do intentional fasting, just because you read somewhere that you should do some fasting, but your body doesn't want you to be doing any fasting at this time, and you do it anyway, not good. Your body is not going to be happy about that. And if your body is trying to get you to fast, but you don't recognize it, so you never fast, well, that's not good either. And how do you know when your body wants you to fast? When you don't get hungry, when it's not making you hungry for more than a day. So if your body, if you have no appetite for one day, two days, three days, four, that's fasting. That's fasting because your body wants you to do that. So to get you to do it, it simply doesn't make you hungry because it assumes you're going to eat when you're hungry, like all animals do. But what do we do with breakfast, lunch, and dinner and schedules? We eat before we get hungry. A lot of people I've counseled don't even know what true hunger feels like because they're always eating ahead of it. They never get to the point where they get to be truly hungry. And when I ask people, well, where do you feel hunger? They, they take their hand and they put it on their stomach and they'll say, well, what does it sound like? And all those grumbling. True hunger is just like thirst. It's silent. It's felt in the same area of the body around here. Now, if it's silent, just like thirst is, and it's felt in the same area, how do you distinguish hunger from thirst? Well, it's because thirst is not pleasant. Thirst is never pleasant. There's no thing, nothing pleasant about thirst. In fact, if it's really a deep thirst, it's going to furrow your eyebrows. And you're going to be like, nah, 
you're not going to be a happy camper. Hunger is always pleasant, always pleasant. So if you're feeling something here and it's pleasant, that's hunger. If you're feeling something here and it's like, no, it's not pleasant. Oh, I must be thirsty. Okay, I'm thirsty. So a lot of people do get thirsty and they drink. A lot of times they're drinking things that are just going to end up making them more thirsty because it's a diuretic. Um, so fasting is something you really got to look into and, and try not to do intentional fasting. And then, you know, when you're talking about fasting, like, well, I'm I fast one day a week. I fast one week a month. I fast one month a year. That doesn't necessarily respect what the body wants. Now, if the body wants you to do that, that's fine. But that's doubtful that the body wants you to fast one day a week. It's extremely doubtful. The body is going to have you fast when it needs you to fast, when it needs more nervous system energy to deal with something serious, right? Um, so that's why it's good to do body initiated fasting, as I call it, but that's what it is, right? So, fasting is, yeah, fasting is something to me that is very magnetic and compelling to people, including people that are quite new to the raw vegan lifestyle. And it's almost like they want to skip to fasting before they've really made significant long term changes to their diet. What do you think? Well, yeah, because it's what they hear you should be doing. They hear the terms intentional fasting or they hear the, the term uh, non intentional fasting, um, intermittent fasting, right? They hear the term intermittent fasting and they hear about how so great this person did that. Well, the person who did it, who got benefit from it, maybe that person's body was trying to get them to fast for a long time, maybe years. And now they just hear about intermittent fasting. So they start doing it and their body is like, thank God because they were never paying attention to the signs of fasting, which is no hunger. Um, but again, fasting when your body doesn't want you to fast. And there's a third category, which people don't like to talk about. Fasting practitioners certainly don't like to talk about it. But is it possible for your body to want you to fast and not want you to fast at the same time? Yeah, it wouldn't have been possible 100,000 years ago. But today, what, what's fasting? Fasting is no eating, nothing coming in, zero nutrition coming in. So if your body is dealing with some nutritional insufficiencies of any kind, but it wants you to fast because it needs to free up nervous system energy to deal with something that's kind of semi-serious, it doesn't want it to become serious, but, it, but it's going to tell you not to eat anything and it's already dealing with some nutritional insufficiencies and now it's going to have you not eat for 7 or 14 or 21 days, you're putting the body between a rock and a hard place. So that's why if I was running a fasting uh, center and someone wants to fast, I'd say, all right, let's, let's prep first. Let's make absolutely sure you can do the best fast possible. Let's make sure you're not dealing with any nutritional insufficiencies of the food provided nutrients. Because if you are, let's get them squared away first, and then you can fast. Because then you're not going to be putting your body at risk in any way, shape, or form. Um, so, yeah, it's best to first learn what true hunger is. And I have an article on my website about uh, what true hunger is. It's um, art underscore cravings. It's an article that teaches you about cravings and in there it teaches you about what true hunger is and then there's another article on how to know how many calories you are really needing so then you can see are you getting too much too little that's important to know too so there's a whole bunch of things as you know that people should be doing before they ever go around and start thinking about fasting which if again if you do it when you're not prepared to do it or you do it under the wrong circumstances or or heaven forbid you do dry fasting which is a thing that's not a thing. It's oh, a thing. For sure. right. It's a thing, but it's not a thing. It's not something we should be doing. Yeah. So when I say water fasting, but water when thirsty, you know, and you might not yeah, get thirsty. 
Yeah. You can you can definitely get a legitimate natural desire to stop eating for a period of time. I don't think you ever get a genuine uh, natural desire to stop drinking or to stop, stop consuming consuming any fluid. You well, know? yeah, the, the thirst mechanism, which is what you're talking about, can malfunction in older people. So you got to be very careful with older people because they can lose their sense of thirst, and that's yeah. what that's when they have to really. And that's only because of ill health. So if you're in decent health, you're right. You're you're not going to not get thirsty if you're thir you know if your body needs fluid. But if you know you're doing this thing called dry fasting and you think that means don't drink any fluid, then you're going to go against what your body is wanting. You're going to get thirsty and you're just simply not going to drink, and that's mm -hmm. not good because one way the body has of getting rid of toxins. And believe me, if you're fat, you're fasting. You're you're using body fat. After a few days, you're using body fat for fuel. So it's taking body fat out of out of the the fat cells and if in those fat cells was any kind of toxins that are coming out and now be now being mobilized now becoming systemic you better be urinating to get rid of those things you, otherwise they stay systemic and lodge somewhere else that's not good especially if they lodge in the liver so it's fasting according to thirst and even some fasting centers will say um uh, you want some water you sure you don't want any water you know just in case the person's not in touch with what's going on because they're feeling all kinds of other things and they're not in touch with thirst. So yeah, so there's a lot of misinformation about fasting. There's a lot of other things that people should be doing before they get to fasting. And the last thing on my list of mistakes that people make is they buy into certain notions that sound lovely, but are, are not true in the real world. And I'm just gonna come out with the one that I'm most famous for talking about and we've had conversations about it, you and I, Ronnie, it's when people uh, hear that, hey, just when you're eating an all raw fruit and vegetable diet, you don't have to be concerned about nutrition. A lot of people tell me that. I, uh, that's what I heard. Yeah, I said, well, yeah, you do. You it was, that was true 100,000 years ago. It's not true today for a lot of people because of the nutritional quality of the food they're buying. And that's just the food provided nutrients. What about the non-food provided nutrients like B12, B12, D? And did you know, Ronnie, that the sun makes more than D in the skin? Not just vitamin D, it makes a, this, like a half dozen other nutrients, which are essential nutrients. Oh, so, well. what yeah, so what happens if someone says, hey, I, love, I, I live in Canada, eh, right? And, and I want, I need to make, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not eating any fortified foods. I'm not eating any foods fortified with vitamin D anymore. I'm not drinking vitamin D fortified milk. I'm not getting vitamin D that way, and it's Canada, and it's in the winter, so I should start taking a vitamin D supplement. That's what I was told by my doctor. Well, that's good that the doctor's even talking about that, but is he saying take anything else? No, he's just saying take vitamin D, but sunshine, strong enough sunshine makes more than that, and it makes things that have to do with helping with blood pressure and, and hormone balancing, so that, that's what we get from strong enough sunshine. So if you live someplace where there's a time of year where the sun isn't strong enough to make enough of all those things, well, you can only buy vitamin D supplements. The other nutrients aren't in supplement form and they don't come from food. Well, now what do you do? Do you move down to South Florida and hang out with me? Well, that's, that's your first choice. Your second choice is get a phototherapy device. Um, here. Right. Oh, well, that works for vitamin D. That's it. Well, that works for vitamin D and all the rest. Oh, wow. All the rest of the nutrients that sunshine makes in the skin. 
Now I travel around, sometimes I'm caught in a place where it's wintertime, you know, it's kind of getting cold, I'm getting, I'm seeing my breath now, I don't like that, but you know, I'm there. That's when I use that, that thing, because that's the equivalent of actual sunshine. And you don't have to use it for long, five minutes on the front, five minutes on the back per day. Who doesn't have 10 minutes to do that? And then you don't have to, that's one less supplement you have to take. <laughs> and considering a vitamin D supplement does, only has D, it doesn't have those other things. And, and yes, people say, well, that's so expensive. It's $550. Well, it's not $550 per month. It's, it's a one-time purchase of $550. And very wise raw vegans who understood the importance of these other sunshine provided nutrients, once I explained it to them, they would take out a loan, they'd sell things, they'd do whatever they had to do to get that thing. Mm. Because once you realize how important it is. So, and then what about B12? I've heard some practitioners give a talk and the practitioner is, or the educator is not big on supplements and kind of talks them down. And someone says, well, what about if I think I have a B12 deficiency? And the, and the educator says, if you think you have a B12 deficiency, sure, take some B12. I'm not against taking some B12 in that scenario. But that's the worst advice anyone can give, Ronnie. Because what did he say? He said, if you think you have a B12 deficiency, sure, take a B12 supplement. What he should have said is, if you think you have a B12 deficiency, test to see if that's what you have. Because if you don't, and you're misdiagnosing yourself, and you start taking a B12 supplement when you don't need to, you're going down the wrong road and whatever sure. you have going on, is going to get worse and worse. Yeah. So do a very simple at-home urine test. It's called UMMA. That's the letters, UMMA. And I have a, an article on my website, health101.org forward slash B12, lowercase b, 12. And it's actually, it's actually here on that page. You'll see it <laughs> at, at forward slash love fruit. It's one of the most important ones because it'll tell you how to self-test and self-assess to see if you need to take a B12 supplement. If you do, there's woo-woo B supplements. You don't want a woo-woo B12 supplement. You want a, a good B12 supplement. And then you test again to make sure it actually worked for you because there's different forms and blah, blah, blah. It's all in there. You don't have to do any guidance with, with counseling with anybody, with me or anyone else. I, I, it's a long article, but you need to read the whole thing. And then you can get your B12. And I have, I've tested so many people. By the way, I've had, Ronnie, I've tested people who've said, I just had a B12 test, the blood, the regular blood test that my doctor does. It's low, but it's not low. It's, it's within range, in other words. It's a low end of in range. And I'm like, yeah, but you do eat dulse, dry dulse and dry kelp. Let me do a UMMA test on you. And the UMMA test shows they have a B12 deficiency. Now, how is it possible for someone to have a B12 deficiency when the standard of care B12 blood test says they're in range, mm. it's because they're eating dried seaweeds. And when you dry a seaweed, you damage the B12, and now it's called the B12 analog. So to the test, it looks like B12, but to the body, it's not working as active, you know, bioactive B12. So this is what I get into the weeds with, and this is what we really all need to get into the weeds with so we can make um, so we can teach proper things about nutrients and about how to make sure to get what I call enough of all. It's really important to get enough of all, which includes water, sleep, enough oxygen. Do you know there's people walking around and I think it's China and they can go up to a vending machine and put money into the vending machine and they can get a candy bar or something, but there's also an oxygen container they can get from the vending machine to put into their mask that they're having to wear because the, the oxygen content of the air where they live is less than 
a 21%, which is what we need. When it starts falling below 21%, or I think 19%, when it falls below 19%, they can start getting lightheaded. So there's so much air pollution where they live, the vending machines in that city have oxygen containers. Can you believe that? That's crazy. It is crazy how we live like that. But we're dealing with that now. Electric cars over the next five, 10 years will solve that problem. No problem. It'll definitely solve that problem. And well, electric no, cars, yes. Yeah, yeah, so, sorry. Um, obviously so much to talk about. We are gonna talk soon on Fridays. I would love to continue to do some more interviews with you because there's a lot there. Um, but maybe we can just finish off with just confirming where everyone can go to get information from you. And um, maybe an encouragement for them to come to the Woodstock Festival to see you there. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, the more festivals you can attend, the better. Uh, I would, you know, pick out like the best of the best. So that would be the Woodstock Food Festival in America, your festival that you have in the UK. Um, I know they never they never occur at the same time, which is a good thing. And um, and yeah, at the Woodstock Food Festival, you can get meme. <laughs> um, but you get a can, lot of stuff there. <laughs> oh yeah, the, the food there yeah. is just well because of the because we have you know people coming up from Florida and just driving the food from Florida. If you could have people drive the food from Florida to the UK, you would, but you can't. Um, so by going to here, health101.org, which is my website, forward slash love fruit, all lowercase, one word, love fruit. Um, I prepared a page there for you with all the best articles, uh, links. You'll see my menu yeah. bar in the top. Every, everything is there. And, and also, obviously, an encouragement to go to your Facebook group, the ultimate raw vegan protein healing group. I think it's something. That... Yeah, I should. I really should have made a slide for that. Yeah. My bad on that. But it's called the ultimate raw vegan fruitarian healing ultimate raw yeah. vegan fruitarian healing group well thank you very much thanks don and thanks everyone for listening and watching please share this with others that you think it might benefit and definitely go and check out don's information at health101.org slash love fruit he's got some free information and a free ebook for you there which is fantastic um we thank you for watching we thank you for uh, support and uh, we'll see you in another episode of the Love Fruit Podcast. And hopefully we'll have Dawn back on again to uh, go over some of the things that we've, we've missed here. But thank you very much for now, Dawn.